Hi friends, before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank you for choosing to listen to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God. We'll soon be celebrating 500,000 downloads since launch and winning a Zenga prize for podcast journalism. If you're enjoying the series and you'd like to help me reach even more people with thinking faith, can I encourage you to support this podcast? Becoming a silver supporter means you get early access to episodes and bonus content, Gold supporters also get signed books and a monthly catch-up with me on Zoom, if you'd like it. The links to support are with the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Enjoy today's episode. 4am I said, you know, I've had enough guys, I'm exhausted, go into bed. Uh, So I walked to the elevator and a man got on the elevator with me and said, don't take this the wrong way but I find you very interesting and I would like to talk more. Would you like to come to my hotel room for coffee? But she decided that because of her religious programming, it was appropriate to lambast this guy publicly in a video as a degenerate pervert. Now you might be wondering what religion this girl belongs to. Well, she happens to be a member of the Church of Radical Atheist Feminism. But it really kicked off when Richard Dawkins put a comment on the Feringula blog. This is what he said, quote, Dear Muslima, Muslima, stop whining, will you? Think of the suffering your poor American sisters have to put up with. Only this week I heard of one, she calls herself Skep Chick, and you know what happened to her? A man in a hotel elevator invited her back to his room for coffee. I'm not exaggerating, he really did. He invited her back to his room for coffee. After, uh... Dawkins talked to her that way, she wrote this post called The Privileged Illusion. And in the first paragraph, she said, thanks, wealthy, old, heterosexual, white guy. When atheist vlogger Rebecca Watson, aka Skeptic, uploaded a video to her YouTube channel in 2011 describing her experience of being propositioned in an elevator during an atheist conference in Dublin, Ireland, she could never have imagined the far-reaching consequences of her small vlog piece. I'll just sort of lay it out that I was a single woman, you know, in a foreign country at 4 a.m. in a hotel elevator with you, just you, and I don't invite me back to your hotel room. Right after I finished talking about how it creeps me out and makes me uncomfortable when men sexualize me in that manner. This incident would become the catalyst for an early Me Too moment for new atheism and arguably spelled the beginning of the end for the movement as many of those who had their own atheist identity fostered within the community began to turn on its founding figures. So my letter to Professor Dawkins goes something like this. Dear Professor Dawkins, In the immortal words of George Takei, you are a douchebag. That's right, a douchebag. I'm Justin Briley, and for over a decade and a half, I've been hosting conversations on faith between atheists, agnostics and believers. In this documentary series, I'm telling the story of why new atheism grew old and why secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. I'll be speaking to those inside and outside the atheist movement and the many new thinkers beginning a new conversation 
on the value of faith. Along the way, we'll meet some of those who have found themselves surprised by God as they've made the journey from atheism to Christianity. Welcome to the surprising rebirth of Belief in God, Episode 2, Elevator Gate. Just before we jump into the rest of today's show, one of the voices you'll hear on this podcast is friend of the show, Glenn Scrivener, a brilliant Christian communicator. Glenn has recently put together an online course called 321. It's an introduction to Christianity that's imaginative, stimulating and assumes no prior knowledge. If you've been thinking about exploring faith for yourself or if you want something to share with your friends, 321 is just the thing. Glenn presents eight video-led sessions which are beautifully shot and animated. I found it a really engaging and practical way of connecting the big ideas in this podcast to our everyday life. I'm already thinking of people I can share it with. See for yourself at 321course.com slash JB. It's completely free. Just start a free account with your email and a password and you're in. There's no spam, no hidden costs. Go to 321course.com slash JB and discover life according to Jesus. The point of me uploading a video previously wasn't necessarily to give sex advice, but to give advice on how we as a community might go about making our community uh, a more inviting one to women, you know, but a lot of you just have no interest in that. You, you just wanted the sex advice. So, so there it is. My advice to you is to buy one of those really expensive dolls and that. So I hope that helps. Elevator Gate and its fallout began after Watson had been speaking at an atheist conference on a panel alongside Richard Dawkins and other guests on the subject of the sexualization of women in the online atheist movement and her own experience of the same. Thank you. Thank you very much for that intro. Can everybody in the back hear me? All right. Because the topic of, of this panel is communicating atheism, I thought that maybe I could offer my perspective as someone who communicates atheism while being a woman. I, I get fan mail, and a certain percentage of that fan mail is um, graphically sexual. Um, <laughs> and, and it's... You're laughing, I hope, out of a little bit of discomfort. <laughs> and if you're not uncomfortable, I'm going to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, because some of these emails do describe in graphic detail what these men would like to do to me sexually. These are from the people who agree with me and they think they're complimenting me by, by sending me these emails, these uh, tweets, um, YouTube messages, things like that. So these are from atheists uh, and they don't necessarily understand that they're being horribly misogynistic. But they are. That evening, some of the panellists and attendees gathered for drinks at the hotel bar and the incident occurred when Watson made her way back to her room in the early hours. Many fellow sceptics came out in support of Watson, but her reaction was also seized upon by many other atheists as an example of an overly censorious and politically correct culture that they didn't want to infect their oasis of free thinking. 
No harm was intended by the man, they claimed. What was all the fuss about? The argument spilled over into the blogs and online forums of other notable atheists such as PZ Myers, who took Watson's side, arguing that their movement needed a more feminist outlook and denouncing atheists who were downplaying the incident. Then Richard Dawkins himself chimed in. As the unofficial leader of the movement and someone present at the conference itself, you might expect him to have tried to extinguish the flames of the growing controversy. Not a bit of it. He chose instead to pour on gasoline by firing off a heavily sarcastic imaginary letter titled Dear Muslima that read, Stop whining, will you? Yes, yes, I know you had your genitals mutilated with a razor blade and yawn. Don't tell me yet again. I know you aren't allowed to drive a car and you can't leave the house without a male relative and your husband is allowed to beat you and you'll be stoned to death if you commit adultery. But stop whining, will you? Think of the suffering your poor American sisters have to put up with. That hand grenade of a blog post triggered the first in a number of incidents and accusations against senior male members of the New Atheist community who were accused not only of being tone-deaf regarding the treatment of women in the movement, but also often being accused of sexism and inappropriate behaviour themselves. Leading lights of the movement, such as David Silverman, president of American Atheists, Michael Shermer, editor of Skeptic magazine, and well-known physicist and atheist speaker Lawrence Krauss, all had accusations of sexual impropriety made against them and published in widely read articles in BuzzFeed and the blogosphere. They have all vigorously denied the claims made about them. Journalist and blogger Bethel McGrew. So, to a degree, this is connected with... Me too, because you have these different figures getting accused of sexual indiscretion. And um, to me, this is, this is ironic because we, we talk a lot about how science was kind of the new atheist's substitute religion. I think you could also say that sex was a kind of substitute religion. Because if you go back and you, and you read these books, uh, that's, a, that's a theme they return to again and again, um, sexual liberation and how these conservative Christians, they, they just want to police your sex life. They want to tell you that God really cares what you do in the bedroom. Um, and even though they wouldn't put it this way, sex is kind of sacred uh, in, their, in their worldview. Um, so then it's ironic and amusing that new atheism itself wound up being fractured and splintered because of what some people were doing in their bedrooms, or maybe indicated they would like to do in their bedrooms. Again, all these men have vigorously denied allegations of sexual impropriety, but Elevatorgate and the continuing concerns around sexism and misogyny in the New Atheist movement was only the tip of the iceberg. You know, it's something I've been tracking for, for quite some time. Like a bounty hunter? Yes, exactly. This is Colin Wright, an evolutionary biologist and author at Reality's Last Stand, speaking on the Joe Rogan podcast. So I started off in like the new atheist movement and I was arguing against creationists and stuff and defending biological realities. And then that kind of, that movement kind of dissipated and or at least is not nearly as prevalent and they don't hold What as happened much power. with the new there was I think, I think it's atheism plus. Have you heard of Elevator Gate? Yes. Was Richard Dawkins yes. involved in that whole? Yes. Yeah, that was sort of the, the thing that sparked off 
in a big way the split up between the super woke people and the classic skeptics. And yeah, that was, it never recovered really. And right after that is when Atheism Plus came out, which was Atheism Plus Social Justice, which really just was woke Democrats who happened to be atheists, basically. And all the new conference topics were just like intersectionality and maybe some vague reference to, you know, disbelief or something. So mm. uh, the atheist movement never recovered from that. It was, it's gone downhill. And now we've seen how the same type of activism has moved in and taken over all over, erupted all over the country and what we're seeing now. So that was sort of a the canary in the coal mine for a lot of what we're seeing now. You also had, and people have talked about this a lot, but you have the rise of atheism plus. So we are atheists plus we care about social justice, women's rights, racism. And the key phrase I think is is plus we care. We are atheists plus we care. And suddenly, uh, you know, in this new social justice landscape, the hard-headed, rational, white male atheist is not the hero. He He's the villain. He looks like the new kind of villain. And so just like that, you have yesterday's cultural victim, the atheist, becoming today's cultural oppressor if he's the wrong kind of atheist. The culture wars began early in the new atheist movement, with anti-woke pundits on one side and many advocating for a new socially justice-motivated form of atheism on the other, sparking intense debate on blogs and podcasts in the atheist community. Atheism Plus is the first time I've been excited about atheism. Because, you know, I, I was a feminist before I was an atheist, and my, you know, interacting with atheists was always the, well, you're right on some things, and I'm just gonna go and leave the room some of the time. This is, like, the first time I feel, like, explicitly welcome. And you had numerous far-left, what you would argue today as woke, bloggers and activists claiming to these established and growing nonprofits that your conferences are filled with sexism and racism. These people took over the entire organized atheist movement in the United States. What was new atheism, a, a really rich, healthy movement sweeping the modern world, died because of this infiltration. Stephen Woodford of the atheist YouTube channel Rationality Rules told me how the movement began to splinter. Time went on, it progressed, and you had like somewhat of a split call it Catholicism and Protestantism, right? You had this split and some of the atheists are just really considering, let's just have good conversations and have free speech and not worry about, you know, whether or not we say things that hurt other people. That's the price of free speech. Whereas other parts of the atheist community very much was like, no, like this is a movement and an activist movement that cares about something and it cares about X, Y, and Z and X, Y, and Z tends to be social uh, rights. So it would be something like uh, women's rights or gay rights or trans rights. So I think that it's split in, in that sense, but it's very much alive. It's actually got control, if you will, with a lot of society. You know, when people start complaining about, ah, that film's woke. I think it's actually partly in the legacy of new atheism. Increasingly, an avalanche of controversies engulfed new atheism. 
On the side of a more socially conscious form of atheism were leading voices of the movement, such as popular blogger PZ Myers and atheist-experienced talk show host Matt Dillahunty, opposite people like Richard Dawkins, who was being increasingly criticised for his controversial take on social media over issues like Islam, disability and apparently downplaying child abuse, even leading to his cancellation at atheist events he was due to speak at. I, I was deplatformed in Berkeley, California, and this hurt me because this, these were, as I thought, my own people. In case we've forgotten that Richard Dawkins is not a humanist. If anything, he's anti-humanist if you happen to be a Muslim or a trans person or a victim of rape or quote-unquote mild pedophilia or have Down syndrome and lots of other groups of freaking humans. What a betrayal we're seeing now. Right. With uh, campuses all over the Western world, America and Britain, are denying people the right to come and speak at campuses. If you can't speak your mind on a university campus, where can you? I mean, that's what universities are about. So then you see this this splintering between the more uh, the more social justice inclined sort of radical leftist types like PZ Myers um, and Matt Dillahunty, and so those guys uh, are going on the atheism plus side, where it's like, well, you know, I'm all for the LGBTQ plus whatever, whatever. I'm I'm all in. I'm on this train the whole way. You have those guys on the one side. And then you have guys like Dawkins uh, or Harris who um, are still, they're still modernists. Uh, they, they want to maintain that modernist commitment to, uh, to biological reality, to truth. Sam Harris, another of the so-called four horsemen of new atheism, was also increasingly at the centre of controversies over his views on race, feminism and Islam. In this interview with talk show host Bill Maher, he reflected on whether his own secular peers had a double standard when it came to religion. Yeah, well, liberals have really failed on the topic of theocracy. They, they, they'll, they'll criticize white theocracy. They'll criticize right. Christians. They'll still get agitated over the abortion clinic bombing that happened in 1984. But when, when you want to talk about the treatment of women and homosexuals and free thinkers and, and public intellectuals in the Muslim world, uh, I would argue that li liberals have failed us. And uh, the crucial point of confusion... Uh, yeah, well, thank you. Thank God you're here. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the crucial point of confusion is that, that we have been sold this meme of Islamophobia where every criticism of the doctrine of Islam gets conflated with bigotry toward Muslims as people. I remember in my teenage new atheist phase reading Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, and I was nodding along with the criticisms of religion and then I got to the bits where he started talking about American foreign policy and even torture and saying that Islam was this big threat. Why is there still a significant portion of the atheist skeptical community that seems determined to protect this bigoted 
at all costs. Why is this self-impressed know-it-all who compulsively demonizes Muslims while claiming that's not what he's doing, who disrespects women while insisting he actually respects them more, who proudly aligns himself with racists and anti-feminists and xenophobes while insisting that he actually super disagrees with their views, still treated like one of the leading intellectual lights of modern atheism and skepticism? But even those controversies paled in comparison to a culture war debate which, by 2021, had engulfed not just the atheist community, but celebrity authors like J.K. Rowling and Hollywood actors like Ellen, latterly Elliot Page, an issue which led to honours once bestowed on Richard Dawkins being cancelled yet again. Unless you've been living under a rock, you're likely aware of the kerfuffle revolving Richard Dawkins' recent tweets. And because of said tweets, his 1996 award of Humanist of the Year being revoked by the American Humanist Association. This has led to quite the schism among atheist activists. Well, friends, I regret to inform you that Richard Dawkins is very much alive and is doing what UK skeptics have quickly become famous for, which is being wrong about trans people. We all know that trans men aren't really men, but let's just be polite about it and refer to them as such, you know, because it makes them happy and it avoids conflict, but we all know what the real deal is. Like, that's sort of been his implicit attitude towards trans people for years, and that doesn't seem to have changed at all. Only in the past year, Dawkins has doubled down on his critique of transgender, speaking to multiple outlets about his concerns. I mean, sex really is binary, there's no question about it. You're either male or female, and it's absolutely clear. You can do it on gamete size, you can do it on chromosomes. Um, and so it is, to me, as a biologist, distinctly weird that people can simply declare I am a woman, though I have a penis. Um, that, that seems to me to be a, a strange distortion of language, because we language is useful as something to express your thoughts clearly. And so I'm bewildered by it. But trans-affirming atheist commentators like Steve Shives have rounded on Dawkins and those who support him. Richard Dawkins is past his expiration date as a leading light of the atheist movement. He is not the person that we should be putting out front and saying, this is our guy. And yet we continue to do it. We let him have endless second chances. And some of us will even rush to his defense when he faces the most minimal consequences, like getting his Humanist of the Year award revoked 20 some years after the fact. We refuse to just let it go. The trans issue continues to polarise both politics and culture in general, but I came to see how directly corrosive it was to the atheist movement in one incident that stood out at a personal level. I introduced Stephen Woodford last week, a.k.a. Rationality Rules, a young YouTuber who I got to know after some friendly interchanges between us led to him being a guest on various conversations I hosted between him and Christian thinkers, in which he confidently argued for the atheist position. But in 2019, he published a video that struck a very different note. It is with great sorrow that I make this video, but I haven't really got a choice. 
I've just got back from Texas, and despite a very sour bite to end the meal, I've had a truly amazing time. I spoke at the Faithless Forum, fired some guns, threw axes, and even rode my first mechanical bull. But the highlight for me, outside of meeting many outstandingly wonderful people, was being a guest at the atheist community of Austin. You see, my interest in atheism and skepticism began by watching YouTube clips of Matt, Tracy, Don, Jen, Russell, and Jeff wielding logic that was, at the time, far beyond my understanding. And so when I was featured as a guest on the atheist experience, and was literally sat next to THE Matt Dillahunty as we achieved the greatest all-time live viewership in the history of the show, I felt incredibly humbled. I literally fulfilled a dream. The community that taught me that free thinking is a virtue, and that I ought to question everything, no matter how emotionally attached I am, just featured little old me, Stephen Woodford, as a guest. But once I left the ACA's warm hospitality to fly back to England, their board of directors released a public statement denouncing me as transphobic and heavily implied that I'm opposed to the LGBT plus community. So a couple of weeks ago, Stephen was featured on The Atheist Experience with Matt Dillahanty and Alex O'Connor, who's Cosmic Skeptic. What do you mean, YouTuber John McRae covered the fallout? And yesterday, we see that The Atheist Experience posted on their Facebook this. Recently, the ACA Board of Directors was made aware that guest co-host Stephen Woodford, YouTuber Rationality Rules, has made ignorant and transphobic videos and statements on his social media platforms in the weeks leading up to his appearance on the ACA shows. Transphobic, meaning he's spreading a fear of transgender people. We would like to make it clear that we do not share or condone his opinions or attitudes and that we fully and actively support equal rights for the LGBTQIA community. This whole ordeal saddens me so deeply, and for many reasons. I don't just feel like the ACA has abandoned me, I feel like the ACA has abandoned itself. This reactionary and unreasonable denouncement of me has crushed me. I feel like I've been used and that I've been thrown under a bus immediately after appearing on record-breaking shows for the sake of appeasing a few hypersensitive individuals. But what exactly had Stephen published that led to this fresh furore among the atheist community? Godless Cranium was one of many online commentators who responded. On March 29th, Stephen released a video titled The Athletic Edge of Transgender Women and Why It's Unfair. At the time of this writing, it had garnered 234,000 views. And to put it mildly, I think it's an awful piece of work. I think it's alarmist, ignorant, riddled with errors, and can easily be used to fuel anti-trans sentiment. I think he was irresponsible to release that video without doing the proper research. And I 100% oppose it and hope he makes a correction video in the near future. In that video, you can find alarmist clips like this one. In a nutshell, I find the arguments and logic that currently permit transgender women to compete against biological women to be remarkably flawed, and I'm convinced that unless quickly rectified, this will kill women's sport. And this one. I don't want to see the day when women's athletics is dominated by Y chromosomes, but without a change in policy, that is precisely what's going to happen. The Rationality Rules Affair was, in the big scheme of things, a minor skirmish, but served as a salient reminder of how divided the atheist community was when it came to ethics and culture. I sat down recently with Stephen Woodford to capture his reflections on the saga some four years on. 
So on the on the trans thing then. So what I did is I made a video on trans athletics and I did a pretty damn poor job of it. I didn't do my due diligence. I didn't think about, you know, what kind of effect does HRT have on, say, a trans woman's body? Because it has a profound effect, but the video didn't even include that. So it was a really poor video. I messed up. However, because I am part of a niche, or I was part of a niche, that very much was fighting for transgender people, obviously that's a problem. If you have someone on a platform, say the Atheist Experience, which is what, what I was on, and that platform is meant to be inclusive to trans people, and yet I've got a video that is really poor on on the trans, on any trans topic, such as trans athletics, that's a problem, and like you're sending a mixed message to the people that are trying to find a space that's actually safe to them. So I entirely understand why it was a problem. Long story short, I ended up uh, pulling the video off public, so it's unlisted. I don't like to delete my mistakes. I think it's okay to just go, look, I made a mistake. You can access it if you've got the link, but it's not public. I donated the ad revenue that it made to charity, and I remade the video going, look, here's, here's a remake of the video. Um, for some people, that was good enough. For other people, it wasn't. And what I learned from this is that a lot of the people that were very, very angry at me know as little about athletics than my video knew about trans people. Um, so I ended up effectively doing all right in the eyes of a lot of trans people. Tr trans people are incredibly understanding, especially for how much crap they have to deal with in, in life. But certain little epochs, uh, certain little uh, movements, no, they, uh, they would have burnt me. If, if they could. And they, they certainly tried to burn my career and with relative success. So, you know, I, I have been on the end of that, but I partly think that, you know, I kind of deserved it. I didn't do my due diligence, but, you know, it is what it is. One of the arguments I make in the book, I don't know if you agree with this, is is that I think those that went off in the kind of free thought, kind of more anti-woke direction of the, of the new atheists, um, they almost replaced their critique of Christianity and Islam and religion with critique of what they would see as a other forms of quasi-religious belief, i.e. transgender, identitarian concerns and so on. What, what do you think of that thesis? So something else you mentioned in the book, forgive me if it's in the same chapter, but you mentioned about the religious mindset and whether or not you can get rid of the religious mindset. One of the things I've learned from being an activist, from being on the back end of being, you know, excommunicated as well for, for you know, saying things on transgender athletics, for instance, is I think that the religious mindset is everywhere and it's really hard to get rid of. And I'm not even sure if getting rid of it's a good idea. One of the ways that my mind has changed when it comes to religion is something that was sold is that religion is the problem. It's not. Sam Harris said this himself. It's not. Dogma is the problem. Dogma is the problem. Tribalism is the problem. And you will find this in any movement. Tribalism, dogma, they're the problems. Now, do they sit and nest very well in religions? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Religions treat it like a feature, not like a bug. But so too do other movements. And I think that when you're looking at some of the uh, social justice elements of the fractures, the lines where atheism has went and 
sometimes atheism didn't go there, but it was just there anyway. You do see the same tribalism and dogma. There's things that you cannot say. There's things that you cannot do. Uh, that person is a blasphemer. You must remove them from, from the premises. This is something that you do find in these movements. And I think that what you're referring to there is the people that recognize that the dogma is the problem, they tend to consistently go, I don't like it at all. And if it's going to happen in that community that's on my side, well, as Jordan Peterson would say, I'm going to clean my room. I'm going to have a go at it. And I, I, I'm someone that would absolutely agree with that. That's, you know, that's what you got to do. Did you know this podcast is also a book? The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again is available now. Historian Tom Holland says Justin has had a ringside seat watching the great debates on religion and reports on them with learning, subtlety and grace. Now, don't tell anyone, but you'll actually get the first chapter free in your email inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter. Or, if you want to just go ahead and order, signed editions are available from my website. Or, even better, you'll get both my books personally signed when you become a gold supporter of this podcast. So for the newsletter, the book, or to support, check the links in the show notes or visit justinbriley.com. Stephen's words about the religious mindset seem to ring true. As I saw the debates and controversies multiply among the atheist community, with different camps taking their stand on divisive issues such as feminism, gender, race and LGBT, and whether or not their movement ought to be activists for or critiquing these ideologies, I realised that the religious instinct hadn't really gone away with the new atheism, it had just morphed into new forms. Many others have reflected a similar sense to me, including author and journalist Louise Perry. It's the sort of New Atheist project, you know, of trying to construct an entirely rationalist, secular sort of um, guided philosophy for society. I think it's supposed to be an abject failure. I mean, what we've learned, I think, in the last 20 years post-New Atheism is that when people don't have religion, they um, just turn politics into religion and it actually makes politics yeah. much worse. <laughs> Um, People are less religious in the sense they just get religious about other things. Exactly, and I would say in a more dysfunctional way and often lose the good bits of religion, like community and whatever, and, and, and um, hold on to some of the more dysfunctional bits. If you look at um, Google search trends between 2012 and 2018, you'll notice these interesting patterns. On one hand, you'll see a decline in searches for atheism or other related terms. On the other hand, you see an explosion of searches for terms like sexism, racism, social justice, as well as an explosion of searches for terms like hate speech, triggering, traumatizing. And so this is your new post-Christian, post-modernist religion. Um, you're enshrining new victim groups and you're silencing the opposition. And so suddenly um, it's not about having debates anymore. It's not about having an argument, which is what atheists thrived on. They thrived on the debate. They thrived on the argument. Now, instead, it's about just shutting down debate altogether because one side of the debate is just too uh, triggering to even be heard. 
The once well-attended atheist conferences and speaking events were also feeling the strain as the infighting continued. A low point was the 2017 MythCon, organised by free thought group Mythicist Milwaukee. Despite intense criticism, they had invited firebrand anti-feminist YouTuber Carl Benjamin, aka Sargon of Akkad, to be a contributor. Among other things, Benjamin had caused outrage the previous year after sending a tweet to British MP Jess Phillips stating, I wouldn't even rape you. Some parts of the atheist community tried to get the event cancelled, sparking angry responses. In case you're wondering, here are the three that seem to want to ruin the Myth Information Conference by contacting the Paps Theatre up there in Milwaukee where the conference is supposed to be held and telling them that they should definitely shut down this Myth Information Conference because they have invited Sargon of Akkad. He's going to be talking with Thomas Smith who is actually on the opposite side of the conversation from him. And see, that is what should be happening. Reason, rational debate and discussion from opposing sides. In fact, Benjamin's onstage debate on feminism and social justice with atheist podcaster Thomas Smith was anything but a reasoned, rational debate, culminating in chaotic scenes. Many in the audience were vocally behind Benjamin, while Smith denounced his debate opponent as awful and those cheering him on as deplorables and sycophants. Smith eventually walked off stage declaring this conference is an embarrassment. When heated arguments continued after the debate, security reportedly stepped in to eject some attendees from the premises. Latterly, even before Covid paused in-person gatherings, numerous sceptical atheist conferences were being cancelled altogether. Some ended due to a decline in interest from those who once frequented them, but the endless political wranglings took their toll as many speakers refused to appear on stage next to other voices from the movement. New atheism was unravelling fast. Theologian Alistair McGrath says once they had agreed God did not exist and religion was bad for you, there was little else to unite the movement. That in many ways, new atheism had little to offer by way of a positive alternative. In other words, if you say there's no God, you say, OK, but what, what are you offering instead? What is your vision of life? Well, it turned out to be simply there is no God. And as you rightly say, they were unable to agree on a vision that held them all together. They each had their own personal visions, which were going in all sorts of political and social directions, but there was no coherence to the movement. So really, it couldn't survive. John McRae. I, I thought it was just kind of funny because like, that's what they accuse religious people of doing is always fighting each other and stuff. We need to get rid of the religion so that way you know, people will start all being in harmony and they won't be fighting and stuff. And I think that they just really easily demonstrated that that's not quite the case because there's something a lot deeper in humans that um, really stirs up conflict, and that's because we all have a sinful nature. So I don't think that there's any kind of getting away from that to some degree, unless we ironically embrace, you know, Christianity and these sorts of things so that way we can start working on the sin problem. As the movement continued to unravel internally, so new atheism began to lose its public clout. The blogger Atheism and the City summed it up well in an article reflecting on the cancellation of the Atheist Conference 2018 following irresolvable disagreements about the proposed speaker lineup, writing, 
The atheist community has splintered into a million shards in recent years. There are the atheist feminists and the atheist anti-feminists, the social justice warrior atheists and the anti-social justice warrior atheists, the pro-PC atheists and the anti-PC atheists. There are pro-Trump atheists and anti-pro-Trump atheists. Atheists are split over Gamergate, Elevatorgate, whether we should organise or whether we should even call ourselves atheists at all. The divisions go on and on. It's easy to see in hindsight that the coming juggernaut of the culture wars were ultimately what killed new atheism. It's revealing that the former leaders of the movement rarely bother to speak out against institutional religion any longer, but have by and large taken sides in these culture wars, many of them fighting what they perceive to be a new form of quasi-religion in the secular world. Personally, I experienced a memorable moment that demonstrated how even once militant members of the New Atheist movement came to rethink who their real enemy was. I had first hosted Peter Bogosian in conversation on my radio show in 2014 when he was a philosophy teacher at Portland State University. He had recently published a book titled A Manual for Creating Atheists, making the argument that religious belief was akin to a mental illness. However, when I emailed him only four years later for another debate, the email I received in response stopped me in my tracks. He told me that I would hardly recognise his attitude towards people of faith now, that he now regarded many Christians as friends and allies in the fight against something he believed was far more pernicious, and I would find out soon what it was. In fact, the pernicious evil Bogosian referred to was the rise of so-called woke ideologies in his own backyard of academia and university campuses. He and other co-conspirators were behind a ruse that saw them submit bogus papers in the area of so-called grievance studies, posing fanciful theories dressed up in politically correct-sounding language, many of which were published by the peer-reviewed journals who got taken in. Their hoax was aimed at exposing what Bogosian believed was a new religious fervour among progressives for new unquestionable orthodoxies around feminism, LGBT, race and identity. In this recent interview with Winston Marshall for The Spectator, Bogosian explained why he now sees the new atheist movement he was part of as a contributing factor to the rise of such woke ideologies. Do you think... It would be unfair for me to say that the new atheists perhaps cleared a path by killing God yes. again yeah. um, for these new religions to, these new quasi-religions, pseudo-religions yes. to flourish. Is, 100%. Is, that, is there a link? It's absolutely true. And I think there was a Pollyanna attitude that many new atheists had that so somehow will will bury God, borrow a turn of phrase from Nietzsche, and everybody's going to be living in some rational paradise. Little did anybody know at that point, although the canaries in the coal mine were in the New Atheist Movement, the skeptical movement, we started to see this in the very beginning, that what would replace it would be horrific. I mean, it would just be... I mean, look look, look, look with the kind of things that we're dealing with now. And so the, it's called the substitution hypothesis. I can never remember if I came up with this or Peterson or my partner. I don't really remember where this comes from, but... The idea is that you have new gods is because people don't believe in the old gods anymore, mm -hmm. right? So the so the substitution hypothesis is when you get rid of the 
Abrahamic traditions or whatever is traditional religion in a, in a country, something else will come in, some other form of irrationality will come in and, and substitute for what was lost. Because the default is you just have to believe in something. Rationality or, or religion? doesn't have to be irrational, does it? Or another... No, it would have to be... Uh, it would ha well, it would have to be a worldview that wasn't substantiated by the evidence because that's what substitutes it. Uh -huh. Popular atheist YouTuber Alex O'Connor, formerly known as Cosmic Skeptic, told me why, even though new atheists believed they were right about religion, many still came to recognise that once they had torn down faith in God, they failed to provide a positive ethic in its place, and that was partly why the movement waned. I do think it's true that the popularity of it has declined, and I think that's got to do with, or got something to do with, the meaning crisis. They try to live with the conviction that there is no God, that the heavens are empty, that there is no objective morality, that everybody just gets to decide for themselves, you know, what, what, what they want to do, and find themselves a bit nihilistic. And so even if they can't bring themselves to say that the new atheists were incorrect, they're, they're less enthusiastic about it as a movement. You know, I, I would receive emails and messages from people who say, oh, I, you know, I saw your video about free will and it convinced me there's no free will, but I'm having a bit of an existential crisis about it. You know, how do you, how do you live like that? Or sometimes people just saying, look, I, I've, I've lost my faith in God, but it was so meaningful to me that, you know, I, I don't know what to do with myself. Um, I think that maybe enough people feeling that way and the people who sort of talk about new atheism being dead often describe an experience like that of their selves that you know they've realized that it hasn't put anything worthwhile in its place means that like i say doesn't mean they can say the new atheists were wrong or incorrect but it's not like a a, a course they're going to rally yeah, around it's, it's not it's not going to give them a, a roadmap for how they should live their life just being told god doesn't exist in that sense I was increasingly hearing this same sentiment. New atheism had been relatively successful at convincing some people that God doesn't exist, but didn't give a meaningful substitute for how life should be lived in his absence. This is journalist and cultural commentator Douglas Murray taking up that thought at the Cambridge Union during a debate on whether religion has a place in the 21st century. There are things which atheists miss and are, I think, very worried about admitting that they miss. Secularism and atheism have all sorts of truths to argue, but their voice is very quiet on many things that matter to many people. The voice of atheism is at least quiet in the face of death, in the face of human tragedy, of suffering. It has very little to say to people who seek, for instance, some kind of reconciliation or forgiveness or repentance, all sorts of things which religious traditions have addressed. Believe it is true or not, religion provided, and I would say provides and will provide in the future, an opportunity for people to ask serious questions about themselves, ask serious questions about the universe and their existence. Douglas Murray, who is associate editor for The Spectator magazine, is an interesting case study for the changing tides in the atheism and religion debate. 
At various points, he has been good friends with the leaders of New Atheism, having lost his own faith in his early 20s. However, he now calls himself a Christian atheist, and in a big conversation with me for Premier Unbelievable, described why he hasn't been able to let go of religion altogether. Uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's, not a, it's not a secret that having been said, I was born and brought up a Christian, a believing Christian for, I think, most of my life, including through my adult life. Uh, and I'm now in, um, I suppose, a, a self-confessedly um, conflicted, complex situation of being, among other things, um, uh, an uncomfortable uh, um, agnostic um, who recognizes the values and the virtues that the Christian faith has brought. There has been a period of rejection of, of faith, particularly from what in our lifetimes has been known as the New Atheist Movement. Uh, uh, which uh, made claims that were self-confessedly uh, um, wrong. The claim that, for instance, morality was obvious was, was obviously wrong. Um, the claim that, that basic ethics that, that we might share um, are self-evident is self-evidently not the case. Uh, one doesn't have to be an ethicist to know that. You just need to travel. Um, you just need to read. Uh, look and listen, and I know that's the case. So um, there has, in my view, I think we spoke about this before, Justin, but there has, in my view, been a, a, an interesting moment in recent years of people saying, actually, if, if we go back and look at this, uh, uh, what we have and what we like does does have roots in this, mm. uh, in the Christian story. G.K. Chesterton famously said that when people stop believing in God, they do not believe in nothing. They have the capacity to believe in anything. Francis Spufford, the author of Unapologetic, speaking on the Reenchanting podcast, says that the new atheists underestimated our innate desire to make meaning for ourselves. Culture-making creatures, we cannot stop producing enchantments. It was one of the things that I thought was fundamentally wrong with the new atheist case, is that they kept behaving as if, as if belief in something was actually optional and could be kind of deleted from the human animal. And actually, actually, humans always believe in something. They were like people frantically, frantically pruning a garden, which whenever they turned their back, burst out wildly into kind of vines and, and strange trumpet-shaped flowers. Um, so so as, I, as I said in Unapologetic, I think the choice is really a choice of enchantments, not... But the, the enchantments that grow in a world which has been disenchanted in the kind of Charles Taylor or Max Weber sense are are often are often different from the past ones. They're more ad hoc and impromptu and made people think themselves personally. They often the materials to hand are kind of amazingly commercial and have been sort of pushed upon you so mm. a lot of what people feel is most individual about themselves often turns out to be straight off TikTok as far yeah, as I can yeah. see um, nevertheless people are constantly making meaning mm. we are meaning making creatures so but and isn't the argument of the new atheists though exactly well yes and that's where this story of yours comes from yeah this and you know and Literally, I can think of the title of one of, you know, the key New Atheist Daniel Dennett's book was Unweaving the Spell. It was yeah. literally about disenchanting. My that... point is that is that if you unweave this spell, another spell mm. will rapidly right. reweave itself even faster behind your <laughs> behind your back. And 
and I and and J.R.R. Tolkien are leaning into your podcast to go, yes, but what about a really good story that happens to be true? Paul Kingsnorth, the celebrated UK poet and author, is another storyteller who argues that perhaps our desire to worship something points to there being a true something that meets that desire. I mean, what I think is if God is real, then God is real. And that means everybody has a longing for God. And actually, I think that's true because I think even if you look at it anthropologically, historically, every culture in the world is built around God in some way. They may have a different understanding of it. They may be wrong or right about this, that or the other, but they're all focusing at some point on where they think the divine is. It's always at the heart of every culture, except this one, which has decided to pretend that's not real for a bit. But that's not going to work because I think humans have a need for it. They have a need for God because that's what we're supposed to do. That's where we're supposed to be orientated. So if that's true, then we're going to want to look in that direction, even though the whole culture is telling us that that's nonsense. Sort of, we sort of know it isn't, but we don't, it's very difficult to know where to look in this society. But I do think possibly that that's true because I, since I started writing about this and talking about it, I didn't really intend to go around writing and talking about Christianity all the time. It just seems to have happened and I thought, well, maybe I should do it because maybe that's what I'm supposed to do with this writing thing I have. Maybe that's what God wants me to do or maybe I should just do it to help others out. But since I started doing it, I've had a lot of letters and emails. I can't even answer them all from people who are in a similar sort of position on a similar journey, often coming from a similar place. You said, yes, much to my horror and surprise, I'm also attracted to Christianity. What do I do? And I can't really help, but except by telling the story. And just by talking like this... Other people can look and say, oh yeah, maybe it's all right, maybe it's not just me, maybe I'm not mad. You'll hear more from those conversations with Paul Kingsnorth and Francis Spufford in future episodes of this series. Many people had turned to new atheism for its promise of a brighter, more rational and scientific future. They believed it held the key to human flourishing, just as the secular anthem Imagine had envisaged a world without religion, heaven or hell, it was only reasonable to suppose that the song's utopian Brotherhood of Man would naturally follow. Yet, despite John Lennon claiming it was easy if you try, it turned out to be complicated. Alistair McGrath reflecting on an article written by P.Z. Myers, once a key player in the New Atheist movement, says that, in the end, the New Atheist movement had a shelf life that existed roughly from 2006 to 2018. His blog posting is called The Train That Was the New Atheism. So this is an insider to the movement talking about his disillusionment. He's an intelligent scientist and he recalls the enormous optimism of the movement in the first years of the New Atheism. He wrote, I was a new atheist. I promoted it. I happily wore the label. I was initially optimistic we were going to change the culture. I was naive and stupid. Now, new Atheism began in 2006 with Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. And as Myers explains, he and his fellow travelers within the New Atheist movement spent the next decade sort of agreeing that there's a kind of unified movement here, while trying to explain it wasn't new, and what unity we had splintered beneath us. I guess it's over now. The New Atheism had a 12-year shelf life.
This was the problem. What could a movement that was built on tearing down God erect in his place? Many of those once optimistic new atheists like P.Z. Myers and Richard Dawkins believed that science was the obvious alternative, an objective source of truth and inspiration we can all turn towards. But science turned out to be a poor substitute for a saviour. Science can tell you how the universe arose, but not why it is there. Science can tell you what you consist of, but not what you are worth. Science can generate solutions to poverty, but not the compassion to implement them. Science can make you money, but not purchase a meaningful existence. The question of which particular values we should celebrate and support was the issue that came to tear apart the new atheist world, as proved by the rancorous infighting of its factions over feminism, race, gender and LGBT. It turned out science and reason alone could not provide the answer to such vexed issues. In that sense, new atheism had turned out to be a very thin worldview, not one that could provide a reason for living or eradicate people's innate desire to worship something. You've been listening to The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God, telling the story of how new atheism grew old and secular thinkers are considering Christianity again. This podcast series is also a book. You can read the first chapter for free when you join my newsletter at justinbriley.com, where you can also order the book or get a signed copy. Patreon supporters get early access to new episodes of the podcast, plus bonus content. That's justinbriley.com. A clip from the big conversation from Premier Unbelievable was used by kind permission of Premier. Visit premierunbelievable.com for full episodes. Next time. As we wrap up, any sort of thing that you would like to say in retrospect now to, to Richard Dawkins or, you know, to the new atheists in general? Gee, um, well, I mean, I think I would. I mean, this is going to sound like I'm just trying to be ironic, um, but I do need to say thank you, actually. How Richard Dawkins inadvertently sparked a revival of interest in the evidence for God. Today's episode was a production of Think Faith in partnership with Genexis and with support from the Jerusalem Trust and Christian Evidence Society. Editing assistance by Isaac Simmons, music by Epidemic Sound. You can find the links to the book and all our featured guests with the show notes. Finally, please do subscribe to this podcast, rate and review us too. It really helps others to discover this new documentary series. Plus, you can get the next episode a week early when you support at justinbriley.com. The link is with today's show. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Just before I let you go, I had this lovely review from Chrissy saying, so good. I've literally consumed this podcast in three days. I've sent it to all my friends from various backgrounds. I pray you guys continue the amazing work and keep those episodes coming. Leaving a review like Chrissy really helps others to discover the show. But if you'd really like to help me keep those episodes coming, why not consider supporting the show or buying the book that this podcast is based on? The links are with today's show or visit justinbriley.com. See you at the next episode.